the two trumpets of woe is what we're covering this evening. And if you hadn't had an opportunity to scan the QR code, uh, here's your opportunity now. first two trumpets of woe. And I want you to think about this and ask yourself this question. What is your response to God's judgment? What is your response? What is our response to God's judgment? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. How am I responding to the work of God in my life now, because God's judgment is affecting my life now, your life now. So you need to ask yourself this question, how am I responding to the work of God in my life now? What's my attitude concerning my life now and concerning what God is doing in my life now? Sometimes we go through seasons when we are not happy (laughs) with what God is doing in our life, right? Or we go through seasons when we think that we know better than what God has, right? So just try to be honest with yourself. How am I responding to the things that are in my life today? Revelation 8.13 is where we're actually starting. So just go up one verse there in your Bible. Because this, I think, is where the section starts. John says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle with a loud vo- crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Woe. What kind of board is John seeing? What, what is this board that is flying directly overhead? Now, when we hear the word eagle, we think of a specific kind of eagle, right? Because we're Americans, right? And the eagle that is famous for us is namely a bald eagle, right? And he's a majestic bird. He's pretty, okay? He's cool, right? He's powerful. Yet, Bald eagles are not native to the Middle East, okay? Bald eagles don't live over there, or Turkey. So it would not have been in the author's frame of reference. He, he would have not had a bald eagle in mind, right? Are you looking for the restroom? It's right there. Okay, he would not have a bald eagle in mind. The Greek word for eagle or bird of prey is atos. 
and it has a de definition range for birds of prey, which includes eagles and vultures. So this is a bird of prey, which is probably better described as the griffin vulture. And the griffin vulture has a wingspan of nine feet. Just to give you uh, an example, nine feet is like half of a pew, and maybe a, living, a little even more. Pretty big vulture there. Perhaps, though, it is not a physical bird of prey at all. This eagle that's flying in heaven. Since some manuscripts uh, of Revelation identify it as an angel bringing the message in midheaven, as the King James Version translates it. So if you join these two concepts together, you could easily describe it as the fourth living being of Revelation 4-7. And we know that they said, come to all the four riders, so it's not uncommon for them to be talking, right, and to be speaking and to be declaring things. So it could be the cherubim, the fourth cherubim, in the throne scene. While the identity of this messenger is interesting, it's really not the main point. We must not forget his message. The message of woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Judgment is coming. Woe, woe, woe to you says it three times because he wants to make sure that you are listening to what he's saying. And he's saying there is a warning. There is a warning, a warning of judgment. Woe. Hosea 8.1 says, set the trumpet to your lips. One, like a vulture, is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law, behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the warrant, his horses are swifter than vultures or eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Woe. Woe is a cry of Warning. Whoa! Maybe you horseback riders, I don't know, it's a cry of stop, right? Whoa, horsey! But for Scripture, it's a cry of warning of judgment. Whoa! Impended judgment is coming. Whoa! The next three trumpets are going to be really bad. The other ones were really bad. The first four, man, it was terrible, right? We've got fire, hell and fire coming down, a thought of the trees being burnt up, all the grass being, I mean, burnt up, the ocean being poisoned, and all thought of the living ocean creatures dying, right? Uh, the sun being darkened. 
whoa. And now it's really, whoa. Pay attention. Pay attention because this warning, this warning brings opportunity. This warning brings opportunity for repentance. Repentance is saying, I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to turn and I'm going to do it God's way. What way are we going to do it, church? God's way. Turning from doing it my way and choosing to do it God's way. And this comes back to that question I asked you at the beginning. How are you assessing and how are you thinking about God's judgment, God's work in your life today, this past week, you see? And your attitude and your interaction with that is going to help you choose to walk a life of repentance. And that walk of life of repentance is a gift that was given to you by Christ's work on the cross. Isn't that cool? Given. Not something you owned, but given. Given to you. You have the choice every day to choose God because of what Christ did on the cross. And if you're not choosing God, then you have the choice to repent and choose God. Choose to trust God. Choose to rest in God. Choose to represent God well. Revelation 1, 9, 1 says, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from, to, fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given to the key to the shaft of the hell bottomless pit or abyss. He was given the key. To the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft. Oh my word, crazy guy, right? He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Darkness, darkened, hazy over all the earth here. So, for further reading on this fifth trumpet and the first row is its Old Testament background would be Exodus 10, 12 through 15, Isaiah 24, and Joel 1 through 2. I'm not going to read all those today because I don't have time. But it would be good for you to read those as you think about the fifth trumpet, the first row. Because this is its Old Testament home. So who is this star? Who is this star? Well, it's obviously not a literal star, right? It's not one of those gas giant balls of fire in the sky or in the heavens, right? Because if a that came to earth, that would be like nothing left of the plant earth, right? 
So it's not a physical, literal star. The star, and it's very common for stars to be referred to, or angels to be referred to as stars, and stars to be referred to as angels. So this star is an angel, okay, a spiritual being, okay, but what angel, what spiritual being is being spoken of here? Is it a good one? Is it a bad one? What do we know? Well, the answer lies in the word fallen. And I'm going to geek out, and I'm sorry, but that's how I come to the answer, so you have to bear with me. The answer comes in the word fallen and its verb tense. Now, in English, we're familiar basically with three tenses. Past, present, and what's the, what's the next one? Future, right. Now, Greek is not satisfied with those tenses, okay? They have more than just past, present, and future. And in the Greek, this word fallen is in the perfect tense. Perfect tense. Which describes the perfect tense. Now, when we say it's past, it means the event happened in the past, right? When we say it's present, that event is what? Happening. I'm preaching, right? That's a present tense. Uh, and tomorrow I will preach, right? Now, the Greek has a perfect tense, and when it's in the perfect tense, it describes a completed verbal action, so it's been done in the past, it's fall, fallen, he fell, right? And that action that occurred in the past, it, but which produced a state of being as a result that exists in the present. Now, there is no way to make this award up in English to communicate this tense, okay? But a way that we could represent it was, I was married, right, September. Uh-oh, now I'm testing myself. 29th, 2001. That state has continued into the present. Does that make sense? Last time I'm checked, I still married. Right? Right? So that's that state of being married and continuing to be married is still going. So this angel fell and continued. He fell in the past. He didn't fall in this passage. He fell in the past and he's continued to have been fallen, okay? He's still in his fallen state. Everybody understand that, right? So we have to ask ourselves, who or what angel fell in the past and is still in that fallen state? Well, let's look at Isaiah 14, Luke 10, 18, because they speak to the state of the angel who fell and remained fallen. Isaiah 14, 
12 says, How are fallen are you from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground who laid the nations low? Still kind of puzzling, right? There it refers to an angel as a day star, right? Son of the morning, right? But here it gets really clear. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, I saw who? Satan. Fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He is, he has fallen and he has remained fallen. The angel then who opens the abyss is probably Satan. The prince of the power of this air, of this world realm. He is the one that probably opens the abyss, that unleashes this demonic hope. Now, is it 1,000% conclusive? No, but the data points are there. So, he does not have the key, right? It is given to him. The key is given to him to open the abyss. Now, I want you to think back to Revelation, and I want you to think back to keys, and we've talked about these keys, and we did a Wednesday night talk on these keys and on uh, the, the abyss or the abode of the abyss. And so I want you to think back, who has the keys? Who has the keys? Remember? The lamb. The lamb has the keys. For he holds the keys of death and of Hades. Right? And the abyss, the abyss is a realm within the, is a place or a, a holding place, a prison within the realm or the area of death and Hades, the, the place of the dead. The demonic. I want you to know this. The demonic is a tool. Now, it is evil, it is bad, it is malicious, it wants nothing but to kill and destroy and to deceive and to ruin people's lives. That is true. But even at that rebellion and that nastiness and that vitriol, God still uses it for his purpose. It's the tool of Yahweh and the Lamb's wrath on earth and a tool of refinement of the saints. And I don't want you to lose sight of that. Because God's judgments are true today just as well as they'll be true tomorrow. God is working in your life today just as well as he will do when this event happens. He's walking refinement in your heart. 
So how does that truth affect your day-to-day life? Maybe it'll bring you a little bit more peace. Maybe it can bring you rest, knowing that what you're going through, the pain in your body, the relational strain, the, the, the grieving of a loved one, the grieving of loss, the financial hardship, whatever it is, God uses it. God uses the broken things of life, the evil things of life, to work good in our lives. This is demonstrated in that he can use demonic forces to bring about his wrath upon the world. So the fallen angel opens the door to the abyss. Smoke and gases belch out of this. And it is so prolific that the skies, the sun is darkened. So what is the abyss? What is this talking about? Is there somewhere I could actually go and say, yep, right there, that's the bottomless pit. (laughs) Let's open her up, see who passes out. Well, not really. It's a place of the dead. In the Old Testament, it would speak of the realm of the dead. Passages that speak about it like this, here's a few. There is a lot more than just this, but Isaiah 24, Isaiah 38, 17 through 19, Ezekiel 26, 20. Let's look at Isaiah 38, 17 through 19. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction or the abyss of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For sure does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the abyss do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living. He thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to your children your faithfulness. May we thank the Lord. May we make known his faithfulness. The abyss in the New Testament and in the intertestamental period is a prison in the realm of the dead. As seen in 2 Peter 2.4, Luke 8.30-31, and Revelation 9.1-2, which is what we just looked at, and Revelation 21-3. This is kind of a rough sketch that I tried to help draw to just kind of help figure this out. The realm of the dead, uh, also known as Hades, actually in, uh, has three tiers to it. So the first tier would be where all the Old Testament saints went and lived, and that would be Abraham's bosom. And I believe you can go look in Luke uh, 16, 19 through 41. Then there is a great uh, crevice uh, between that, and that is the realm of the dead, uh, Thantos, Mott, and, and that is where lost souls 
people who die that don't know Jesus go. Okay? It's not hell. This is the realm of the dead. And then, even farther down, is the place called the abyss or Tartarus, right? And this is where the bad angels or the bad demons are locked up. And we can look at that. That's Revelation 9.1. I mean, you just see what comes out of that abyss, right? Bad dudes. So see, 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spill angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, that, uh, hell is a really poor translation, uh, but the transliteration is Tartarus, and you look that up in the dictionary, and it says the realm of the dead, um, as long, and the same with, if you look up abyss in the dictionary, it talks about it being the uh, realm of the dead. So cast them into Tartarus, and committed them to be them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And then if we go to Luke 8:30, he says, Jesus then asked the demon, What is your name? And he said, I am Legion, for many demons had entered the man. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, the prison for demons. Revelation 20, 1 through 3 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss, the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. It's a prison for demons, bad demons, right? So Yahweh and the Lamb are allowing the enemy, the Satan, to release the worst of demons from prison, to bring judgment on the earth. Once that is accomplished, they will be locked up to await the final judgment. Revelation 9, 3-6 says, Then the smoke came from the locusts on the earth. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the green, the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. What are these locusts? The real, actual locusts? No. They are demonic. They are a demonic host who are restricted in their actions by God for his purpose. 
but they are the demonic hosts who torture and torment those on earth who do not know Jesus. <laughs> the sealed. The sealed are protected. You are protected if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You are sealed. You are protected. God takes care of his own. You want a sermon on the sealed, go back and listen to the sermon on Revelation 7, like two Sundays ago. The rest of humanity are tormented, unable to die. They receive the wrath of Yahweh and the Lamb. Revelation 9, 7 through 10 says, In the appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair woven hair like wo women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing in to battle. They have tails and the stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Turn to Joel 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountain, great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will it ever be after them through the years of all the generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish, and all faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each one his ways. They do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his paths. They burst through the weapons, and they are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb upon the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome. Who can endure? Yet even now, yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disasters. John, angel, was seeing and describing the spiritual realm and its results in the physical realm. The spiritual realm is hard to explain because sin in the fall has caused it to be veiled to us. Because I believe in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they saw God. They were with God face to face. And they were with all the spiritual beings in the Garden of Eden. They saw angels. They saw the cherubim. They saw all the myriads and myriads of angels. They could see them. It wasn't veiled. But today, now, since Adam and Eve sinned, it's veiled. We can't see what's going on. And, and it's actually kind of illustrated to us that that lack of sight is illustrated to us in 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what should we do? We are doomed, right? We are surrounded. He said, Do not be afraid. It was Elijah. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Or it's Elisha. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, Please open his eyes that he may see. So Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, he saw the spiritual realm and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So you see, we were created we all created to live in both of these realities without confusion. That's, that's what we are. We're, we're indwelled beings. We have a body, but we're spiritual as well. Yet, we are often confused. And I think that's one reason Revelation brings so much confusion to people about appearances in the spiritual realm. And Revelation has a lot of visions of the spiritual realm in apocalyptic style. So, as you're reading these visions, a good rule of thumb that a is, this is a, a good rule of thumb, a spiritual being's appearance speaks of their attributes and function more than their physical appearance. Let us say that again. Their appearance speaks more of their attributes and function more than their physical appearance. For they are spirits and can change their appearance. After all, the one who has fallen, doesn't it say that he goes about as an angel of light? And yet he is the opposite of that, isn't he? 
He's the father of lies, right? So in the spiritual realm, we do not want to necessarily get obsessed by how things appear and like that's what they look like all the time. We want to try to understand what their appearance is saying about their attributes and their function, okay? Since they, as spirits, can change their appearance. The description, then, of this demonic host is not describing some new military war machine that will be created in the future. It's just not. And you really shouldn't waste your time thinking about that. Because that's not the goal of the author, it's not the goal of God, and it's not even representing physical things. No. It's a description to show that these beings, these spiritual beings, these beings of the demonics are effective in the torment of mankind and thus affecting judgment of Yahweh and the Lamb. That's the function of this description. In Revelation 9-11, it says, They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he's called Apollyon. Both of these names mean destroyer. Is this Satan or another high-ranking demon who was locked up with, with the rest of the demonic host in the abyss? I think the context points to a, another high-ranking demon, since we already discussed at the beginning of the sermon that it was Satan who unlocked the abyss. Revelation 9.12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Woe. It's a cry of warning. Warning of impending judgment of the next two trumpets. The warning brings opportunity for repentance. Will we choose to walk a life of repentance? The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release, four release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. I think it's interesting. We've been going through a lot of heavy things Men being tormented for five months. Men seeking to die but cannot die. Seeking death but cannot find it. And here then John calls our minds back to the altar of incense where the saints are lamenting for justice. Crying out, how long? How long? Right? How long until you bring justice, they cried out. Their justice has arrived in part. Four angels bound at Euphrates all released to kill 
a sword of mankind. In today's Earth's population, that is 2 billion 700 million. That's a big number. Earth's population is about 8.1 billion. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000, 10,000. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's head. And the fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. By these plagues, a sort of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horse is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are, are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. This innumerable, or if you want to take it literally, 200 million demonic hosts executes Yahweh's and the Lamb's judgment in the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur. All instruments of wrath and judgment. When faced with the harshness of judgment, we are tempted to think no one deserves this. Not even my worst enemy would deserve this. Right? And we may be tempted to think this is not right. This is wrong. And yet, the sad reality is is that we all deserve this. All have sinned. For the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all deserve the wrath of God. But thanks be to God for the work of Jesus on the cross, who has given us the gift of repentance. He paid it all on the cross. All my sin is paid for. All your sin is paid for. And he has given you the gift, the ability to repent, to say, yes, I'm wrong. Yes, I confess you as Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And now, oh, brother or sister, you are saved. Revelation 9, 20 to 21 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So what is our response to God's judgment? How are we responding to the work of God in our lives now? I challenge you today to choose to walk in a life of repentance. 
a life that continues to turn to God in his goodness and in his grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you are just. We thank you that you are true. We thank you that you are right. We thank you that you are walking in every circumstance in our lives. And Lord, we just choose today to walk with you and to walk in repentance of our rebellious hearts that want to turn us away from you. And we choose to continue to turn to you and to pursue you. And we thank you that you on the cross has given us that privilege and honor, and we choose to walk in that gift that you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.